Hello, and welcome back to another episode of International Immersion, a podcast that seeks to capture the combined experiences of people, culture, places, traveling, current events, living abroad, and everything that comes along with them. For tonight's episode, we want to go into a more deeper context and topic, and that is to kind of begin a bit of a number of episodes on nationalism and populism and other ideologies and method or methodologies that we are seeing more and more in this day and age. So for this episode, I have my father back on, who um, I would say has quite an in-depth experience with studying this and also keeping track of of politics, news, and other things from both a current and uh, historical background along with myself. So dad, it's great to have you on again tonight. Great, Sean. Yeah, glad to be back. Appreciate it. Yeah, so for this episode, I thought it'd be good to kind of really delve deeper into these topics because you know, as, as we both know, you know, we tend to focus on these aspects. We want to learn about them, delve more deeply into the factors that influence them, how they rise and fall, historical tendencies that are repeated again and again, and also maybe to explain to people in at least from our viewpoints and from what we observe, what's going on in this day and age. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a process, right? Very much so. So to begin with, I mean, I think the biggest question we need to answer is for, I mean, for everyone would be is, you know, what is nationalism and populism to begin with? I mean, a lot of people may know this, but, you know, just to kind of be, be very blunt, you know, the definition of nationalism is basically the identification of one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations and its people. So in a sense, nationalism is basically putting your country first, which in many ways everyone should because that's where they live. But at the same time, there are both, I would say, acceptable and extreme versions of this. Yeah, that's a good place to start with that. Exactly. And then and on, the, on the other coin, populism, which I would say is something we've seen more and more recently with politics in the U.S., but also politics globally, you know, highlighted specifically, I'd say, the U.S., Europe, and other countries. But, you know, the basic definition of populism is a political approach that strives to appeal to the ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by the established elite groups or basically kind of the masses versus the elites, which has been a common trend throughout history, but it's something that is continuing and it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. So and we can explore contrast of those as well. Uh, perhaps some historical context and things in this first episode and kind of let it evolve from there. Exactly. So to begin with, I think we can focus a little bit on nationalism because nationalism is nothing new and it's something that consistently rears its head again and again. And in many cases, it's been responsible for a large number of conflicts in both recent and, you know, more in more and further back in history but you know so that would so i think in many ways nationalism has been a great tool for the state or for organizations you know in the past to bring people together for a common cause because as they say nothing unites people like an external threat or opponent yeah whether internal to that country itself or something from abroad yes yeah. And I think, yeah, and you and a lot of times it can be a foreign entity or it can be a perceived foreign entity within within a country's own borders, which I think 
today in the U.S., you're seeing both of those things in a number of ways. Yeah, I, I think that from from a national for nat, from a nationalism perspective, um, we have to keep in mind, you know, that some of the things we're talking about on this particular podcast are going to be controversial because nationalism can be applied definition or in practice, you know, depending upon the intent of those that are using that tool for whatever reason. Exactly. And that's a very important, you know, thing we want to, you know, disclose to our audience is that we're just talking about this based on our own experiences, what we've studied, what we see, and our a number of other factors, but we're not trying to target one group or, you know, do anything specific. We're just trying to bring these concepts into greater, into a greater, into a more perceivable light and kind of delve into them and to discuss them and explain more and more just to give people more of a, you know, grounding on these topics, I would think. And I think that would be a good way to describe it. Yeah, no, I think that's appropriate. And I think that full disclosure on my part, you know, I would classify myself generally, you know, as a more liberal minded, progressive minded person and individual, primarily because I pride myself on my ability to think critically, have an open mind, etc. And I personally uh, would contend that that attitude towards nationalism or populism in general is the way in which to understand it and to have its use be applicable in a way that will have more positive outcomes necessarily than some of the other examples that may exist out there. No, very, very well said. And I would say, you know, for disclosure as well, I would say I definitely tend to lead more moderate on many things, but there are a number of issues or a wide range of issues that I can go more liberal or conservative, but generally I would say I'm more, a little more liberal overall, but I, but my, personal thoughts and beliefs do kind of trend in both directions, depending on what subject and what matter at hand there is, which I think many people do, but I think it's important. You cannot be all one or the other. You have to have, you know, kind of a equal ground on some things because extremism on either end, the right or the left is, is never healthy as you know, we've clearly can see now and have seen throughout history. Yeah. So when you think about nationalism in that example, I think that's very well spoken because by having, you know, obviously intent is going to create the outcome of what you're using nationalism or populism for. So having more of an independent perspective, if you want to use independent in a political sense, that lends itself for an ability to be able to slide in either direction towards the, your own personal intent or the group that you're with towards whatever outcomes or change, you know, or progressive attitudes and mentalities that you would want to be able to create that change around. No, very well said. And I think you bring up a larger point here is that no no one ideology or methodology is inherently bad. It's all about how it's used and applied. You know, nationalism by itself can be a great tool for bringing people together for the common good and to improve the situation of one, of a, a country, a state, you know, or an entity, whatever it is, but at the same time, if it's used in, incorrectly, it can cause tremendous amounts of damage and, and you know, human, human, human loss, destruction, and I would say economic and basically overall negative uh, results. 
Yes, and that can happen whether you would consider yourself in quotes to be left or right. So it's it's not that I or we you know are labeling one particular political movement you know or cultural movement to fall into those categories. We're just saying that in order to be able to leverage nationalism and populism to their best effect, their most progressive effect is from that more independent type of open-minded attitude, which brings people together, as you said, and that's very well put. It's very powerful, nationalism being a very powerful tool in that respect, but not necessarily at the expense of the body politic, you know, or the state as a whole, which there's a lot of connections and controversy in the United States and in Europe and other places in the modern era that are being affected by the more extreme elements that, in my perception, don't allow for a greater inclusion or, or tolerance from a more populist perspective. Exactly. And I think you and that's another interesting thing is that you're seeing more and more of these two ideologies you know, it being interchangeable and interconnected, even though they're not specifically tied to each other, you're seeing more and more of it because I think in the, the situation in the United States now and in, in, in the relative recent, you know, period of time, you're seeing, you know, definitely a nationalist sentiment in some ways, but you're also seeing this populist sentiment because of a large amount of the population's discontent with the status quo, with the economic system, Wall Street, politics, political deadlock, and all these other things. So, and going back, you can kind of see how these things manifest off and on throughout history based on different, I would say, situations and periods of time where it lends to the, you know, proliferation of either idea, either together or separately. Yeah, that's a great call out. I think that if we hearken back historically, to ancient Rome and ancient Greece as an example, Greece in particular, um, from a political perspective, one of the things that I observe in the United States as an example, and I'm sure there's probably, it's probably a factor outside the United States is this idea, this Greek, uh, I'm not sure what the original Greek word was, but the English word is the dialectic. You know, bringing together opposite perspectives, either from the nationalistic point of view or a more populist um, perspective, bringing them together so that their intent and their ultimate outcomes can be more of a blending, you know, a, you know, a more of a kaleidoscope of both sides of the fence. And, their, and the outcomes that they want for that. I think that when you look at certain nationalistic movements within the United States today in the modern era, um, they seem to be fueled, in my opinion, by a certain lack of education, secular education is one example, um, cultural understanding, like that the United States was and became what it is today because of immigration as one, uh, uh, one specific example. Um, and as a result, then you, you end up with a situation where propaganda creeps into it or those motivators that have the intent that they want to create division as opposed to inclusion within their different intentions. And what happens 
is you end up having, you know, that part of nationalism, which ends up attempting to denigrate, you know, or eliminate a particular part of society that really could help to further those, further those end, ends as a result. And they end up losing out on a certain section, you know, of the population from that populist perspective um, that could actually dialectically make the overall situation better for everyone. Now, you bring up some very good points there. You're kind of breaking those down piece by piece and that, you know, I think education, first and foremost, I think is the most important thing any citizen of a country can have. They need to be able to have the cognizant ability to think for themselves in terms of dissecting each methodology, political ideology, um, economic, you know, thought, theory, whatever, and not just these, but many, many other things. They need to have the ability to go through that and do that. And while many people do, I've observed, and I know from a lot of factors and just watching news and traveling, you definitely meet people who cannot. And that is very unfortunate in my mind, because in many cases, those types of people are the ones that become victims of either of these, you know, ideologies used in the wrong way. And I think what's happening now is that a lot of people, you know, when they, when you join a movement there, you know, it's exciting, it's interesting, you're among like-minded people, but I think in many cases that can blind you and you stop actively thinking about what you're doing. And that's where things can happen. Like the riot, in the Capitol back on January 6th, mm. correctly that I think that's an example of, of that to an extent gone too far, not to bring politics specifically into the situation or discussion, but that is an example I think of, what blind nationalism or blind populism in terms of like yep. what happened in Argentina with Juan Perón and that regime in the fifties, that those are examples, those are examples of how things can kind of go downhill rather quickly. Yes. And it, it borderlines on the, con on the controversial subject, you know, of a cultish mentality. So I think on both sides of that nationalistic and populist type of perspective, you know, the cultish mentality can creep into that, where even regardless of your level of education and regardless of a both belief system, if you want to bring religion or philosophy into it, these folks end up becoming so blinded, to use your words, of what it is they're trying to accomplish that they don't see the other avenues or the quote wormholes or the quickening surrounding how inclusion would actually create potentially a better and more integrated society for all aspects of a nation. Because we know that nations aren't just made up of particular political, cultural, you know, economic movements. They're multi-tiered, multi-leveled. And all those, you know, tiers and, and levels interact with each other. So one of, you know, from a governmental perspective, one of the great challenges of a democracy, you know, is to, is inclusion, not, not necessarily the segregation of things. Um, and we've seen with a lot of recent examples in the U.S., you know, I have to name, there's probably too many to name, you know, that a lot of the things that maybe have not progressed towards inclusion to the point that they would need to create more of an equilibrium have been exposed, you know, whether you want to take it into the racial realm, you know, or extreme political ideologies, um, et cetera. Those things have kind of come out, which is one of the benefits of 
the extreme pendulum swinging to the point where it is so in the media. However, the media plays that role on either side of the fence. It's so much in people's, the forefront of people's consciousness that it actually gives an out, an opportunity for people to, to question their own implicit bias, you know, their own cognitive dissonance, so to speak. But if you're too entrenched in either part of that process, as you say, you will be blinded to a greater possibility of inclusion, which any nation, it behooves them to always create inspection and reminder points. Are we including as much of the population from a populist standpoint that we can for the betterment of all layers of our economy, our political system, governmental system, um, cultural interconnectedness, are we doing that becomes the question. And sometimes that question is a hard question. Sometimes it can't be completely resolved, maybe only partially, but the direction has to be towards that inclusion in order for a nation you know, to really benefit from every quality that its individual citizens have, their individual temperaments, talents, and convictions being leveraged you know, towards a, the greater body politic or the state. No, I think you bring up a great point again in that the fact that, you know, a state, a nation, a political entity, it's always going to be strongest when all levels are, in, are you know, synchronized to their maximum um, potential, both politically, you know, socially, culturally, economically. But when you, like, you, but like you're saying, when you create these divides or you have these, this turmoil, that's going to erode the sustainability and functionality of the state. And yes. society and cult and the society and various cultures that may make up that society based on the type of people that are there. And granted, and I think a lot of a lot of things, a lot the one key factor that drives a lot of the elements in both of these ideologies is fear, and more, more specifically, <laughs> fear of the unknown. Because yes. fear of the unknown, I'd say, is probably one of the biggest factors in. Wars, conflicts, misunderstandings, because people simply do not do, do not know the other or this other idea, this other theory, whatever you want to say it. And that by itself can make people do some very, I would say, what, what's a good word? Crazy things. Or Well, I, yes. Potentially. Yeah, I think that uh, if I can quote Voltaire correctly here, I think he said, if you can convince people um, of absurdities you can also convince them to do horrible atrocities. And that's paraphrased, but I think that was a, essentially what Voltaire's meaning, meaning was there in that kind of paraphrased quote. So I think that the, the inherent danger that we all have to question ourselves about, because it's also about uh, vulnerability and self-honesty to yourself and vulnerability to the plight or um, ideas and ideologies of folks or groups that you would perceive as being different. I guess that's where tolerance plays a key role in inclusion. Just because you look different or you think different or you believe something different doesn't mean there's not value to the greater society in its social contract um, from both sides of the fence. I think when people get entrenched 
as you were alluding to, into one part of that. Nationalism becomes more of a blight, you know, than something that people can rally around. And from a populist standpoint, um, you have more of the political ideologies that developed and were corrupted, in my opinion, in things like Marxism or Leninism, you know, or things that happened, you know, in history regarding quote communism in general. Um, so I think that we always have to remind ourselves, you know, that am I going down that path? Am I taking an extreme view that removes inclusion or understanding or specific to my example about dialectic conversations and dialogues from the average person on the street all the way up to the halls of government? Very well said, and I would definitely agree with you on most of your points there. And I think the main issue is that a lot of people are simply not exposed to what to anything education. They're not, they're not that they don't already know or what they've been brought up to accept or deem appropriate based on family, community, and their local beliefs, customs, traditions, so on and so forth. And yeah, I think this is where, like you said, education is a big factor, traveling, friendships. Uh, delving deeper into different, you know, philo philosophical ideas and in, in terms of in the realms of politics, um, you know, stoicism, uh, just a, so many other things. <laughs> I would say, you know, just to try yeah. to have a sense of yourself and not just be part of whatever where, where you are, what you believe, and all those factors in themselves. I'm not saying that that they're not that anyone's not good or bad. That's irrelevant. But the point is, I, I think people need to identify who they are as a person, that really will help them kind of think more in-depthly and more critically because a lot, a lot of people, they don't really have a sense of themselves. And that is an issue. And this is getting more into, I think, more societal and more of a personal discussion. Psychological yeah. part of it. Yeah. But yeah. it goes, it definitely is, a, is an influencing factor. But I think at the end of the day, education is first and foremost, the most important. And granted, like you said, bias. Everyone's going to have the implicit bias or natural biases for a wide range of reasons. That's not a problem. But I think it's very important that you understand what your biases are. And that may not be easy, but I think it's very important. Yeah. And that's where cognitive, yeah, that's exactly. where cognitive dissonance comes into play. Now, education can be prevalent. Uh, I guess the insidious part of any side of the coin, left or right, to use those general examples, can be insidious. You can be well-educated, but have a particular agenda that you actually don't care, not you, but any one individual does not care about inclusion. And that's a conscious decision towards exactly. a particular that's, end. Exactly, because people who have reached a certain level of education, they may realize, hey, I can benefit from this. I can make money from this. Yeah. I can inc increase my own power, prestige, whatever, whatever from this. And that has been repeated throughout human history since the since it's recorded deception that's correct yes that's correct if you look at it from a populist standpoint you know you've got the the masses rising up against the elites as in the definition that you started this podcast with you know so there very well could be and there's historical examples of folks in the elitist branch who made conscious decisions that i'm going to use the population as a whole to better particular ends, whether exclusively selfish, and I use that in the small self, more of a, uh, I guess, what you would call malignant narcissism as one example, you know, and then vice versa from the standpoint of, you know, the, the masses rising up and 
basically wiping out, you know, the elites because they have not included the success that they have created, maybe from a capitalistic perspective, economic perspective, and just said, well, it's just better to wipe the slate clean. No, good, good point. And that definitely says a lot right there. And it has a lot of insinuations. And I think going further with, I think a lot of the populist sentiment you're seeing in the US, I would say just as an example, I think a one factor of many, which can be discer- you know, discussed inter- in greater depth, but I think one key factor that I think has caused a lot of disat- disenfranchisement, disat- dissatisfaction, others, I would say is the erosion of the of the middle class in the previous yes. last few decades because when people have a good standard of living are comfortable they're, they're not going to be as questioning or as i would say outspoken because their quality of life is good they're they're reaping the benefits of the system society economic you know initiatives etc but when people start to suffer and they start to lose out and they can see others that are, that's going to breed resentment. And that feeds mm-hmm. into a populist movement. And I think that's what you've seen. Or nationalistic. Country. Exactly, either one. And I think that's what you're seeing in many cases, like with the with President Trump's campaign, there was definitely a strong populist and nationalistic elements or elements. They were both. Yes, that's a good call out. But at the same time, I think just not, you know, that's just one example, but I think there's a deeper deeper sense here. And also, I think that kind of goes in with like just our previous discussion about like, you know, the the multiculturalism in the U.S. and multi, you know, you know multi, you know, different ethnicities in the United States, which which are benefiting, which are not. What Those are all factors that can feed into this. In many cases, I think a lot of this is very much economic based, even though it's not necessarily the not really, but it's a huge triggering factor. Yes, I think that there's two aspects in there that we can talk about. There are others, but there's two. One of them is what you've mentioned, which is economic. The other is more political. And I don't think you can disconnect politics from a lot of the stuff that's happening today. Oh, no, but, because that's how so many of these ideas, thoughts are being channeled is through political discussion, yeah. political leaders, etc. Yeah, the opportunity you know, of economics. And how that's either, you know, progressively put into place to benefit a variety of different social or economical strata within the United States or any country um, is, is an important part of what fuels that. On a political scale, you know, it's those making a conscious decision to forward a political ideological agenda as opposed to the, quote, greater good, however groups or individuals would define it. So as soon as you kind of cross over that political line of I'm going to cover myself because I think it's in the best interest of my political ideology, there on the other side of that, something is, has to be sacrificed because that individual politician or group of politicians you know, is making a conscious choice to forward an agenda that's not necessarily inclusive to the entire nation. And on the other side of that, you know, you have, you know, folks who dilute it to the point where the greater good becomes almost unattainable because it is not prioritized in a way that creates that inclusion, if that makes sense. Oh, 
yeah, hence that's the roots of many cases of radicalism, both in the individual and within a group uh -huh. of political body. And that's demonstrated by both, you know, extremes. Any political party has its moderate to extreme elements. And those are always in a way fighting with each other for which spectrum of the spectrum is going to take precedence or take charge. Exactly. So leadership, when you think about leadership, either from a populist or nationalist perspective, you know, true leaders are the ones that are always looking for ways to include those other portions of the process, or the, or the strata of the process, you know, leaders that are more demagogic, you know, or um, propagandic because of the choices that they've made in terms of that agenda um, are the ones that usually bring societies down. And there is tons of historical examples, things we could go into that would be an entirely different podcast to this one. But I think in general, uh, that's where the psychology of the individual, self-honesty, vulnerability, um, being and educating yourself. If you can't necessarily follow into a particular educational system, it's like Isaac Isimov said, you know, always be in a situation where you can self-educate, even if you are already out of an educational system, if that makes sense. Oh, exactly. And I think that's a very important thing about life in this current, you know, this current age is you never stop learning. You're always going to be learning. And you as an individual should take a, you know, a strong emphasis on educating yourself just because you've done your, you know, primary, elementary, secondary, you know, higher education, higher education does not mean, like you said, you're going, you know, that you're not going to fall prey to these types of ideologies or, you know, part of them or whatever. But in a greater sense of the individual, it's to your benefit to continuously improve and learn about new things. It doesn't matter really what, but as, as long as you're continuing to learn and educate yourself about new and interesting things that can benefit you, those around you, and society or every, everything to a greater extent, the more educated people you have who can you know, manage money better, who can you know, take care of a house better, who can, you know, use more efficient, uh, you know, energy sources, things like that. All these different things can improve society as a whole. But I think a lot of people that I've seen, heard of, et cetera, a lot of people don't do that. You know, they, they finish something and they just, they kind of sulk in a way. Not, not well, it's to disrespect anyone. It's just, I think a lot of people, you know, it's like they kind of cap themselves to an extent at times in terms of learning and expanding themselves. Right. Now, the what we've just said being said i think one of the pitfalls to education or self-education is that you can go down a road of insulation you're just learning more and more and more about what you want to learn of which supports perhaps a cognitive dissonance process that's very and not looking outside of an inclusive perspective that's where the dialectic most people don't even know what that is if you ask the average person on the street, they're probably going to not know what dialectics is. Um, but it's important because it is a system and a methodology to get to a middle ground. And within a social contract, democratic society, like we have in the U.S. as an example, that's critical, uh, especially at the governmental level. Because otherwise, you see the gridlock that we've seen over the past 10, 20 years, however you know, you want to define that at any one point. At minimum, you say the last several days. administrations. You could say that, yes. And I think that's a, a great point you bring up. And a good example would be like, you know, there's so many people that 
they only watch Fox News or they only watch CNN or they only watch MSNBC, so on and so forth. I understand that you know you have a chosen media source, but the problem is if you only rely on one media source, that definitely can have implicit bias and definitely is has a good amount of political spin and is pushing the audience to believe certain things or certain ways about something, that's going to, I would say, disconnect you from the mainstream. And I think a very important thing that you need to do is you need to increase the number of media sources you expose yourself to, because that's going to give you different, I think a very important term here, points of view on the same story. Because at the end of the day, if you're educated, you know how to dissect information and generate a conclusion in your mind, don't give me the political spin. Don't give me a you know, commentation on whatever. I just want the facts. I want the information so I can make my own decision. But a, but a lot of the news sources out there today, they don't necessarily do that. They're trying to push a specific agenda or perspective on something. So, well, that's where critical thinking. Exactly. Again, uh, you know, education is one thing, but being educated on how to critically think, how to compare and contrast, and to overcome those implicit bias. It's, it, it kind of boils down between the concept of believing in something or belief and wonder. If you have enough wonder about the differences around you, your belief doesn't have to be sacrificed in terms of getting to know, understand, be inclusive and tolerant of different ideologies, different perspectives, different cultural norms. That, I think, ties into some of the things we've talked about on other podcasts, which is if more of a particular population had the opportunity to immerse themselves in a different culture or a different system of a social contract in, from a different country perspective, I think we'd see potentially there's other factors that support or don't support that. You would see a much more broader or larger view that the general individual would have to kind of the world society, so to speak. Oh, exactly. Hence the, hence the purpose of this podcast. Immer mm -hmm. What's the second word? Immersion. The more yes. people immerse themselves in, in different things, the more it's going to at least give them the potential to be more open-minded because a lot of times people are like scared of the unknown. They actually go and do something. Oh, wow, I can do it. Just like, uh, con you know, the idea of confidence. A lot of times people are scared to do something or exercise, or, you know, whatever. But once they realize they can do it, they realize, wow, I should never have been scared of this in the first place. But that's a big problem. Some people will never actually take that step to do it. And granted, there are a lot of factors, you know, that, you know, because if you want to travel and do stuff, you need money, you need time and other things. But in more of a conceptual perspective they don't mentally take that leap or try and, and you know from a larger macro macroscopic perspective a lot of nations don't necessarily focus on that type of experience for their citizens i know oh, that very much so yeah very 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 much so well that's why you see in a lot of collegiate here in the united states and you know other types of international programs where they send students to different countries um, that type of perspective, I think, is underutilized. As long as the core principles, you know, of of wonder versus belief exclusively, you know, fuel the reasons for doing them, the intention of sending students. 
And it's probably why, you know, at the university level, those that take that to heart are, are going to have a larger view of the world. Uh, they're going to be in a, a potential position to bridge those cultural, economic, or political, you know, gaps, thresholds. Exactly. And I think because of that, that's why we've definitely got, we've made so many improvements in, I think, you know, in the, on the global scale because of globalization, you know, regardless of your perspective on it, but, and because of interconnection, that has certainly helped, especially with the technological advancement of social media and communication that has really helped. But at the mm -hmm. same time, those factors alone do not guarantee this is going to continue. You know, social media is a great example of that because social media as well-intentioned as it probably was, generally speaking, has also caused its own insulary pockets, you know, that propagate a lot of the concepts that we're talking about, either populist or nationalist in perspective or a conglomeration thereof. You know, as you said, birds of a feather will flock together, but it's also important to know, notice and to, to be interactive with other groups of birds, to use that example, <laughs> you know, or you'll, you'll only see, you will not see beyond the bubble of what that represents. And the difference will become a threat and not something to be learned from. Oh, very well said. And like you said, many people, they are in a bubble or have put themselves either intentionally or unintentionally in a bubble. And that right there is, you know, is very unfortunate, but, but what can you do in many cases, you know? Well, it's a, it's interesting because I think at the heart of a lot of um, nationalistic perspectives, maybe more so than populist, um, that's something that I have to kind of look into a little bit more, but I think from the nationalistic side, you know, the kind of primal reaction that seems to flow through a lot of nationalistic movements all over the world is this idea of tribalism. And it's something that we can potentially get into in another, you know, um, discussion. Yeah, another uh, another part of this series. But tribalism is the kind of a primal base where nationalism, you know, people will revert to. It's like, you know, back in the days of the clans, you know, in Scandinavia, you know, or, Scotland. you know, or the Mongols, you know, or whatever particular group you want to assign that to um, was, you know, we are the tribe, we are the chosen one. And these other folks that are different for us, you know, from us, you know, they need to bend to our will without necessarily taking into consideration that that other tribe has a depth of richness in culture, economics, whatever it may be, that actually, if it was more of an inclusion, would provide for something completely new and different you know, to be, you know, to, to come into being that that particular tribe could end up evolving further in concert with those other tribes that were different as a result. Oh, that, and that's, and that's been very vividly displayed throughout history, you know, going back to history again, which we do a lot, but it's, it's just so relevant. And that mm -hmm. is another, I think another element that comes out of that is ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism, the idea mm -hmm. if that your own culture, values, practices, beliefs, et cetera, are superior. Because like you said, each tribe or each group, they identify for a number of range of factors. They all look the same. They all have the same religion. They, they all have mm -hmm. the same culture, whatever it may be. But because of that, that can also 
breed like a sense of superiority as you kind of hinted there as well and you've seen this you know played out many many times and mm-hmm. just look at the argument for conflicts or conquests that have been made by leaders or groups and what do they use to justify that oh they're different from <laughs> us. Oh, you know they don't believe the same thing we do they practice certain things that we don't like so on and so forth all those are factors that play into that and yeah it kind of boils down to you know how people identify why they identify the way they do what elements make up their identity and then what is the school of thought in that society or community or whatever about the outside now i think there's a few there definitely are exceptions to that rule and i would say uh, one example would be the romans now granted they did a lot of bad things so on you know blah 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 but <laughs> the one the reason why the romans were so successful is because they were inclusive they mm-hmm. didn't care where they got ideas from if they were effective they util- utilized them so and i think what is that pragmatism is that pragmatism yeah like yeah pragmatism also you know it, you know they were an inclusive culture an inclusive inclusive society in a way not everything but at least in terms of many ideas and practices and i think in a way the us is like that in its core or its core idea we bring people in we you know if you want to come be part of the united states and contribute that's all that really matters but I think at the same time, a lot of the elements within both nationalism and populism can definitely push that to the side or try to erode that. Yeah, the fear of difference. Um, it also speaks psychologically to the individual and that group sense of identity. Um, very, very true. It's, it's, it's almost uh, it many times observable by myself, in myself and <clears throat> the groups, my spheres of influence, and those I see that are different to that, it, there is a fear. There is a is a genuine concern that you will lose that identity as a result of that inclusive process. But every time, personally speaking, spheres of influence, that that gap has been bridged, there's always a greater sense of the diversity simply within my own life is one example, or the lives that I've seen other people go through that too. So the examples at least observable and experiential from my standpoint is you don't lose your identity. You create, you, uh, you engender a greater sense of identity within yourself because of that inclusiveness or that dialectic attempt to understand. No, I think that's very important. And I think like we've mentioned, like we hinted at earlier is that, you know, we all have an identity that's, you know, a construct of what we're surrounded with, how we're brought up, et cetera. But also there's also everyone has to create a sense of their own identity and how those two interact can vary, but also then how does that interact with, you know, identities further afoot? Yes. And it circles back to the point that you made earlier, which is that a lot of folks don't really have an understanding of their own self-identity. So they they take on the identity of a group, whether nationalistic or populistic, because they don't really have a connection to what it is that they feel that they are, or maybe even even close to understanding what their nature as an individual is. And that's kind of a source of even another uh, segment in this this process, which is the psychological determination of one's own self-identity. Most of us, myself included, when it comes to, to certain things, are more parroting 
you know, a collective consciousness or from a uh, Carl Jungian perspective, a collective unconsciousness, you know, that doesn't really have a sense of itself. So it attaches itself to something else so that it can feel that it does. Oh, very, very true. Very true. And there's been so much research, both psychological, <clears throat> social, you know, and other, other school of thought that have been done on, on, on this. And I think that it's, it's something that just defines, you know, us as humans, you know? Yeah. Very know, much human nature. You know, yes. You know, humans, we're, you know, we're social creatures. We identify by a wide range of factors and that can both influence a wide range of behaviors that, that, you know, are prosecuted in the world, in the world today. But I think, and kind of to wrap it up, I think it all goes back to a sen the sense of yourself, education, critical thinking. And I think critical thinking is so under, undervalued in the fact that it's mm. not <laughs> you it's not the at the question everything or think everything's wrong it's just you should question something if you don't understand it and if it makes sense okay fine i'll do it but if it doesn't make sense and it's like why am i doing this then like why then why would i do that <laughs> or, yeah well critical thinking is an attempt to understand based on the largest variety of factors you're simply you're balancing these together um to create you know, a sense of understanding coupled with self-knowledge. So if you don't understand something, you have much more of a propensity to fear it. Exactly. Exactly. And if you take a step back and just think to yourself, okay, why is this different? Why do I fear? And simply look into it, that may solve the problem right then and there. But a lot of people don't do that for a whole host well, of it's, it's It's terrifying sometimes because if you don't, have any level of coalesced self-identity then that's terror that can be absolutely terrifying it's much easier not to think for yourself in those situations or those examples you just said it, right, is, you said it right there a lot of people don't want to put the time and effort into it which is understandable you know whatever you find no i get it i totally get it i mean it's not it's not my worldview but but i i also appreciate that it is terrifying and certain aspects of it, even with the way I see my worldview, are still terrifying. And they oh. probably always will be because they speak to the idea, maybe the, inclu uh, the inconclusive aspect of human nature and psychology, which, of course, is potentially a whole nother podcast. But um, we're touching on, you know, somewhat generalities and how, you know, these various factors are creating movements um, you know, within modern society. Exactly. And I think, you know, we can definitely discuss more of what we think or hypothesize what may happen in the coming, you know, years and decades based on the situation now and kind of where these, where the trends have been moving based on what's happened in the past. But like, we, but like I mentioned, that can be for, that can be a whole discussion in of itself for another time. Mm -hmm. But yep. uh, <laughs> but actually, but that I really appreciate kind of just kind of breaking down a little bit of a background on both these concepts and kind of explaining a, lot, a myriad of factors that influence them and define them based on people, events, history, and other factors. But mm -hmm. I think this has been a great, uh, a great start to this series. And I just wanted to appreciate the time and the, um, you know, contemplation we, we've had this evening about these topics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just for our audience, you know, you've got a father and son, son and father. So, 
this is this for our audience's benefit. This is, you know, this is something that, you know, I have really connected to with you and then you connected, uh, you know, with me. And it's a it represents a deepening of our own relationship, you know, however similar or different we might be as individuals. So I guess from a father, son, son, son to father perspective, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you in this way. Well, yeah, and I think you, you definitely have some good points there. And also you're having you're having two different generational perspectives on this. Yep. Plus you're having two yep. two people's who's have different life experiences, but also similar life experiences. And they we can discuss this in, in a sense in, into an ex, to an extent where we can kind of bridge different things, highlight different aspects and elements that are, are going on, but come at them from too similar, but yet, but yet different approaches at the end of the day, since we're two different people. Yep. That's an awesome call out to end the podcast. Exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure, dad. And, you know, like we said, we'll be continuing with this series and uh, delving deeper into all of these topics. So I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode. Uh, feel free to let us know if you have thoughts, uh, questions, or comments, uh, feel free to email us at international immersion podcast at gmail.com. We'll gladly get back to you. We hope that the situation with COVID-19 will continue to improve as we can get back out and travel the world and continue to learn and explore and, you know, further develop our sense of ourselves and what this world has to offer. So this has been another episode of International Immersion, and we will see you on the next one. Thank you all. and Take care and stay safe. Thanks, everybody.